episode 34 of the Green and Healthy Places podcast, in which we explore the themes of sustainability and well-being in real estate and hospitality. I'm your host, Matt Morley, founder of Biophilico Healthy Buildings and Biofit Wellness Concepts. This week, I am in Berkshire in the English countryside, talking to Sean and Lerka Sutcliffe of Benchmark Furniture. Set up by Sean with his then business partner, the late Sir Terence Conran, back in 1984, Benchmark are an artisanal workshop of 70 plus people, but they've also been trailblazers in pushing the themes of green and healthy furniture in recent decades. They've worked with the likes of Foster and Partners for Westminster Abbey, Oxford Colleges, museums and public buildings all over the world. Our conversation touches on how their interpretation of sustainability has evolved over the past almost 40 years, the history of VOCs and formaldehyde in wood workshops, vertical integration as a way to control the provenance of their work, how hiring apprentices locally ensures long-term staff retention, their recent brand extension into healthy upholstery, lifestyle assessments and their thoughts on biophilic furniture via the medium of wood. If you like this type of content, why not hit subscribe? You can hit, you can find Benchmark at benchmarkfurniture.com and my contact details are in the show notes for any feedback or comments. I would love to start with a question around your the positioning of, of the business itself. So you seem to have this wonderful combination of, of craftsmanship, craftsmanship, sustainability and responsible business practices. And it feels so now, it seems so current and yet, You've been around for a little while now, so I just wonder if you could sort of place that in the context. Did you set out with that initial vision and the world has aligned or has it been more of an evolutionary process over the last 30 years or more? So we set out um, 39 years ago when we started the workshop with a highly unusual stance in the furniture making community. I I mean, I I took a, a rather stubborn stance that I won't use any tropical timbers and people were quite dismissive and and some people were quite offended but I'd you know been learning as a young man about deforestation particularly of, of prime forest and so it was my stance then was we like to use wood but we won't use any tropical timbers um, because that way we are not deforesting and we're not using any endangered species and it was that was our stance for many years, but what's happened over the intervening nearly 40 years now is that the argument has moved. And so what it, it, our stance is now not so much, we won't use tropical, tropical timbers, although we choose, we prefer not to, um, but it now embraces so many other things that we've learned over the last 40 years. Uh, but yeah, we were, you know, we were the first workshop in the UK to to adopt as zero formaldehyde. We were the first workshop in the UK with FSC chain of custody um, certification. So we've, we've always tried to look ahead at the way that the sustainability arguments and, and the health and well-being arguments have gone. And, and people tend to think that, you know, the health and well-being argument is pretty new but actually, you know, we it, it's it's twenty five years ago that formaldehyde was, you know, became the hot topic, um, and so that you know VOCs were being looked at then. 
but it's not a linear process. And, and you know, what we're saying today will change tomorrow because the situation on the ground will change, science will change, um, imperatives and priorities will change. You know, now everyone's very focused on carbon. Um, but, you know, some while ago, everyone was very focused on acid rain, say, or eutrophication. Um, but I think it's also interesting uh, to sort of look at it from both the um, the planet and the, the, the people. And um, that has become quite important for us within the last sort of six years to have a position where we both consider the carbon footprint and the transparency in the materials that we are using. So being that workshop or, or, or that destination where you as a customer can come and buy your product and combine the, yeah, the carbon footprint and the non-toxic material is essential uh, for us. You mentioned the word transparency and clearly a responsible business in a way needs to take ownership for presumably a bit more than just that final piece of the puzzle where you're, you're placing the wood together, the craft piece comes in. How have you adopted this process of vertical integration and what role has that played in helping you get to where you are today? Because not everyone can start and certainly or have that as an aspiration, but you've done it. So how important has that been for you? Yeah, we've, we've done it over a long period of time, but um, in truth, most of our vertical integration came about through a simple desire to have more control over the quality of our work um, and the provenance of our work. What nowadays vertical in- integration also gives us is more control over the uh, the wider aspects of you know employment practices diversity practices and so forth that that play into the sort of supply chain argument nowadays. So we nowadays happily frequently get asked um, quite deep and, and and complex questions about our supply chain. And the more that we can supply from with, under our own control, the simpler that process is. Of course, we've still got our material supply chain, but in terms of subcontract supply chain, we, we're we use very, very few subcontractors. You also mentioned the idea of employment practices, and it's something that really comes across in terms of your communication online, the idea of adopting responsible work practices that really seem to be a part of your DNA as a business. Was that an instinctual process? Was it just something you felt you needed to do? Did you follow guidelines? Was there a plan from the beginning, or did it, again, evolve quite organically? Yeah, I think I, I wish I could say there was some greater and higher good about it, but actually it was a very simple um, realization some years into running the business and training people that if you employ locally, your retention is much better. So we you know we started off employing graduates and students um, or craftsmen from from far afield, you know, other parts of the UK or, or overseas. And they'd come and do a few years and then they'd revert back to normally back to their places of origin. And and so we thought, well, this is mad. And so we we started employing and training apprentices only from our local area. And it may sound a bit mean, but you know, when when apprentices apply to aspiring apprentices apply to for training here, if they haven't got a you know our local postcode or a pretty local postcode, they're not in the running. Um that that's a 
a self-interest thing about about keep retaining staff. Um, but of course, what it also plays into is is our journey to work miles are very low. Um, we do care. It's sort of a dreadful cliche, isn't it? Say that you know, we we treat everyone like a family, but we do have very long employment um, profile here, and so we 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 really do care very deeply. And we're you know we've got second generation staff here, um, which is very gratifying. So it started out purely as a way of keeping staff, um, but that has evolved into a very good employment practice in terms of, of local employment and, and artisanship in the countryside. I mean, I think that, you know, the goodness knows the countryside has lost most of its skilled jobs. Um, and here we are on a redundant farm employing more people than the farm ever did in agriculture, in high quality artisanal jobs. There is then also that connection in terms of the materials as well. So employing and working locally, and then, as you mentioned, not using uh, tropical woods. So could you talk to your vision of, of cradle to grave life cycle in terms of the materials that you're using for your products and perhaps place that in the context of the wider industry? Because uh, it's not necessarily an industry that's known for getting everything right in that sense, but you've really taken a stance on it. Yes, and we... Well, we have the, the great advantage that we, our principal material is wood. I mean, 99% of everything we make originates as a tree. So we have a, a fantastic advantage in terms of sustainability, providing that we're making sure we're buying our wood entirely from sustainably forested sources. And that's an absolute for us. You know, we, we, we will only do that. Um, but then the materials that do extend beyond wood into maybe upholstery you know we, we've changed radically our approach to upholstery because that's you know the, the sort of use of petrochemical foams which is almost ubiquitous in, in the upholstery world is a very nasty business um and so we, we've we've changed what we do in line with you know we're not the only people who've done that there are two or three others that are, that are following suit or or, or even led led the way for us, um, but we. I'm trying to. I mean, okay, sorry. On on the on the life cycle assessment, we were really lucky that some ten years ago we started working uh, with Imperial College London and PE Associates of Stuttgart. Um, on life cycle assessments. And we, we did this as, as some projects that we did with the Royal College and, and the American Hardwoods Export Council, looking at you know, measuring the, the, the real proper metrics of cradle to grave uh, life cycle assessments. And we produced the first furniture, I think in the world at that point, the first wooden furniture in the world that had fully verified life cycle assessments. And we've continued to do that and we've continued to, it's an evolving science and it's, it's an imperfect science still. But we now, on all our core ranges, do environmental product declarations, which include life cycle assessments. And we're able to give not just the carbon content or the carbon store of the pieces of furniture, but also all the other measures, the other sort of seven measures of um, environmental impact that 
are embodied within the work we do. So it's a really fascinating thing. And, and in order to be really transparent and protect against a world that is flooded with greenwash, we really need metrics. And it's only through life cycle assessment and independent verification that we can get reliable and proper metrics and, 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 and people can, can see and trust the knowledge they've been given about the impact of what they're buying. I think we also decided about, I think it's five years ago, um, that we wanted to take it to the next level, as Sean is saying, the, the fact that all, all products today are declaring themselves sustainable. So, you know, where does that, uh, for, for a firm like us, who truly has been dis- sustainable uh, from, from the very beginning, uh, before it was something um, cool, um, where if we wanted to keep leading the way in terms of taking it to, 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 to the next levels, how did we uh, best sort of um, yeah inter interact with 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 the the movement? So we decided to um, to have third party verification. Uh, so basically, be able to put the hard facts on the table. So uh, in that process, we had to go back and analyze a little bit the materials that we were using. So glues, oils, um, and upholstery was our biggest challenge and uh, we then went into to a sort of a process of putting um, quite a bit of pressure on our supply chain uh, which I, I think is needed you know uh, people uh, like ourselves and, 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 and our friends in the industry sits with quite a lot of uh, responsibility in terms of um, choosing the materials that we put out in the world so if we can put that um, uh, pressure on the supply chain saying, guys, unless you can meet those uh, criteria, so those transparency, uh, uh, in our case, we wanted to to, to have a, a declare label um, on, on, on the products. Uh, so unless the products um, that our supply chain provided could meet that, uh, the low VOC basically, um, they, they, we couldn't deal with it. We couldn't deal with them. So we had to sort of have some quite sort of upfront meetings about either you, either we work on this together and we get to where we need to be at, or we have to go and look for other places to source our core materials. So I think that was a really interesting process. And, and as Sean say, you know, we obviously come from a very good starting point because we work mainly in, in timber, but we still did have to look at uh, our glues and our oils and 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 ba- and, and really um, in, in engage with the upholstery. Um, and I don't know if it's worth it going into sort of like a deeper sort of description of how we did. Yeah, I think you know we've we've you've also started introducing some terms that perhaps aren't so familiar for everyone. I think it's even worth taking a step back. So the, even the idea that your furniture could be unhealthy, that uh, a flame retardant, i.e., a chemical process, is going to off gas into your home or your office over the the first six to twelve months. The idea that the adhesives might do the same and lower the quality of the indoor air in your space. And also, you mentioned the filler, but I saw that you'd sort of found an ingenious solution by working with a, 
a UK company that I know from Devon, right, who do the wonderful mats. So you went to a natural mattress company to find a solution to fix the issue around nasty foam filler as your upholstery, essentially, right? That's right. And and I think, uh, as I said, you know, we did start it out by putting pressure on the existing supply chain and didn't actually get anywhere. So we then quite at some point in, in, the, in the research uh, process, because also we have decided to take on this whole uh, process ourselves. Quite a lot of people would outsource um, the process of meeting all of those different standards in the industry by, uh, you know, like an agency. Uh, 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 but for us, it was quite important to actually uh, do the heavy work ourselves because you get so much more uh, into the grid of what it actually really takes to um, not just tick the box, but actually do the right things. So we, in the research process, it, it became quite clear for us we had to be thinking innovative and alternative. And um, Natural Met uh, has been uh, quite re- revolutional in the way that they have uh, providing their uh, different materials that builds up their mattresses. Um, so we reached out to them and said, you know, this is what we are trying to achieve. And actually today, if we really want to do some massive changes, we believe we have to collaborate across industries and be and, and, and think a little bit above just sort of like the day-to-day, you know, and what we set out to do gold-wise, our, our missions and missions and so on. And um, and we actually became really good friends with uh, with the guys running uh, Natural Madras. And we, we had to persuade them that, you know, guys, come on, let's club together and let's try to, to do things in a way that is not necessarily the conventional way of doing things, and uh, anyway, so so here we are. We uh, we have this really nice collaboration. We we were just together in London doing uh, uh, the first sustainable exhibition uh, last month, and we're standing there, sort of shoulder to sh- shoulder by shoulder, and have become friends, and 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 can sort of feel proud about what we have managed to do um, to make change. I I do think that we're all going to make a lot more difference if we collaborate more and if we if we have as much openness and transparency about what we're doing so we we have a rule here anybody can come and visit our workshops you know industry competitors competitors whatever they can come and see what we do and how we do it because on our on our own we're going to make very little change but if we can help lead away and and larger and and perhaps more influential businesses financially influential businesses can can see that there's a way forward and follow suit then then we're going to be very happy to have shared that knowledge we do also on our website we actually share our composition of how we managed to put together our upholstery at the end because that was also quite a process of finding both comfort and um and sort of um actually meeting the 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 first the fire retardant natural fire retardant within the build up of the structure so we did put quite a lot of sort of testing and, and effort into getting there and as Sean's saying instead of sort of you know putting a copyright and sort of being proud about it we actually say guys give us a call this is how you do it we show it on the website and yeah very open to share and i think it's also 
important to mention that uh, we, you know, we have walked the walk and, and, and come a, a long way. We still have a lot to do and we will keep walking. But um, we are never, um, never trying to uh, look or, or, or come across as the expert in the industry, but more the sharing um, uh, people that we, we hope you will follow if that makes sense. It does, absolutely. And as you say, I mean, uh, who is the expert in this? Who's actually delivering on the promises? It's, it's a highly, um, it's a fast-moving business and we're all trying to sort of stay on top of it. But, you know, you have made the commitment with your latest collection, the OVO collection around these EPDs, so environmental product declarations. And that connects with that theme around transparency and, again, being very open and honest about exactly what's gone into it. In fact, then getting a third-party certification around it. They're carbon neutral. Can you talk to us a bit about that latest collection? Because it does, it does, from outside, it looks like it's almost sort of a real encom- encompassing a lot of, of your values and the principles behind the business in one. Is it sort of the furthest you've gone so far in terms of delivering on that? Yes, it's the, the over range um, was the first of our core ranges that we did full environmental product declarations on. And it, it, for me, it embodies the very best of um, design. You know, I think the design is, is the best of modern design. It, it's simple, it's tactile, it's biophilic. It's, it, it, you just feel good in its presence. You want to stroke it. Um, it's non-toxic um, in its constituency and its materials. Um, it has a measured embodied carbon declared on it, and in almost all cases, other than the the leather upholstery pieces, it's, um, it gives us a, a, a sort of net carbon store, or people you can call it carbon negative, but we call it a net carbon store uh, value. Um, and I think it's it does embody the best of of what we do. But we've extended the environmental product declarations now to many more products, um, and we've had sort of external consultants write us algorithms that that enable us to do this in a, in a simpler way. We still have to have it, have them the figures verified uh, by a third party peer reviewed, but it does enable it to be more streamlined, and it is a bit burdensome, and and a lot of businesses just cannot see how they would ever do it, but the processes are becoming simpler. And models are being built that ina- will enable makers of anything really to to do this, and it's it's just going to be very valuable. I think that that a time, I hope, a time will come when we will base taxation of products not on a sort of arbitrary figure of the of the pecuniary value, the, the value in pounds, but the taxation of products will be based on their carbon cost being a much more real cost as we face, you know, the, the, the climate situation we we face. So I think that that it's really important the sharing of knowledge and the making it easier for businesses to to produce life cycle assessments or environmental product declarations. We can also place that within the context of, although there may not be government level legislation yet around uh, targets 
for the carbon impact of furniture in a new workplace, let's say. If that workplace or the owner, the real estate developer signs up for a lead uh, process and indeed the well process, there are then, in, in a sense, that provides that structure that then gives additional credits and effectively encourages the industry and someone like myself who's specifying well, which furniture should be put into these 12 floors of offices. We're then out looking for brands, businesses, products such as the Over Collection that have that EPD behind them and they're then rewarded with credits on the on the overall project score. So I think it's your, there's a, there is a commercial angle too, if anyone's sort of not convinced by the, just purely it's the right thing to do. When one is aligned with LEED or BRIAM or one of these systems, there are literally points scored for um, purchasing products that have these EPDs. And that that's at, at the moment seems to be the best we have in terms of nudging the industry in the right direction. You mentioned biophilic design, and it's typically referenced for entire spaces. And a lot of people think of effectively plants, uh, but I'm a big advocate for biophilic design being much more about things like texture and, and natural fabrics. You mentioned it in the context of your furniture. So from, from where you sit, how does this trend, if we can call it that, or a shift towards a more natural approach to interiors? How are your pieces talking that language of nature? So we, our pieces of furniture do speak as a very natural piece because principally they're made of wood and as human beings, our sort of oldest and most trusted relationship with any material is with wood. It is the most, in, in any survey done anywhere in the world at any time, wood is the material that gets the greatest amount of trust and credibility from from the buying public. Um, I just believe, I know that we react very well when we can see that something's made of, of wood and preferably of solid wood. Um, the fact that we can touch it, the fact that we can feel the grain, we can see the grain, it just takes us into a natural world. There are all sorts of measures um, that, that are starting to be done um, on the the brain's reaction in our relation to to to, to nature, um, and there is some science. We're starting to get some science that is actually able to pinpoint specifically which parts of our brain react well. But I'm also a great believer in in instinct, and I regard instinct as being little more than the sort of distillation of, of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years of, of experience and existence of the race. Our in, if our instinct is to accept and trust and feel good in the presence of a material, then you're probably right. And we don't give enough credit to instinct. Um, we, we tend to look for, for sort of scientific explanations for everything. And yet we accept that instinct exists in the way a, a whale migrates or a swallow returns to its nesting site. We, we accept that instinct exists, but in everything except human beings. And so I think we should listen a little more to our instinct and everybody feels better, closer to nature. And if that closer to nature means sitting at a wooden table and feeling a piece of wood or sleeping in a wooden bed or having a wooden floor a wooden wall, then that's also beneficial. 
I think also more indirect, uh, for instance, our new collection, uh, our new fabric collection um, has aspects of biophilic um, by the fact that it's created in, in natural materials and um, without the need of um, any fire retardant treatment. So, so aspects like that, that, you, you know, if you keep, if you're building up products or spaces, with, with, with only um, materials that's uh, either yeah, natural or not in need of any toxicity for, for, for or, yeah, any treatment, that, that layers up, in my opinion, the biophilic design. So I think, by, as you say, Matt, biophilic design is quite often misunderstood by, you know, just at the very end of the project, you're putting a few sort of plants <laughs> in plastic or, pots around the office. Or a green wall. <laughs> a green wall. Or a green wall, you know. It sticks much deeper than that, than, 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 than in how you are creating a space in layers. I noticed one of your previous projects was the, the Maggie Centre in Manchester. I had the opportunity to collaborate with Lily, uh, the daughter of, of the late Maggie, uh, on one of my early projects and really a landscape architect created a wonderful green gym space for us. And I, when I saw that you'd also been involved on a Maggie Centre in Manchester, I just thought, oh, what a great, what an obvious connection and so fitting. So perhaps you could just describe a little bit the involvement there, because again, I think there's a real connection with, with biophilic design and uh, creating a nurturing space. And it's essentially a, a cancer care centre, right? So a place where it's, its real mission, its purpose is to is to nourish and calm and relieve anxiety. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a huge fan of, of the Maggie's charity and Charles Jenks's vision um, after Maggie's well, it was Maggie's vision in her own lifetime, having suffered that that sort of shock of being diagnosed with cancer, and you walk out of the oncology department in some big hospital, and where do you go? Where, where do you take that shock? And their vision was that you take it into a Maggie Center and that these centers should seek in every way to sort of calm and reassure uh, and comfort you. And nature is, in their view, and, and I would share it entirely, the greatest comfort at that moment. And so all Maggie Centers are built as much as possible in natural materials. They have gardens. They have a big kitchen table where you can give, which encourages a sense of community and, and sharing of your um, that moment and of of your diagnosis or, or treatment afterwards. Um, and so we've actually been involved in a lot of Maggie's projects. Manchester was was one of them, which was a Foster and Partners project. Um, but we've done a lot of the Maggie centres, and I think that sadly, um, Charles Jenks has he's, he's died now, but. Um, the charity continues and garners a lot of goodwill for very good work, but it is that central thing of, of, of putting nature at the heart of a building, whether, whether it be through gardens, planting, natural materials, tactility, shape, form, and undoubtedly every Maggie's that I've ever been into does give a feeling of wellness sort of ironic when actually they tend to be rather full of people who are unwell with cancer. But but they, the, the, 
the physical environment is a very well environment. There's then also the topic of of circularity and circular economy and and durability and something that one can really sense with with your work is that I think no doubt due to in part to the vertical integration to the level of craftsmanship to the quality of the products and materials something that's going to last and you've you've really committed to that with this idea of almost sort of a take back scheme at the end which connects with the idea of circular economy and I'm I'm a big fan of this I think pretty much everyone needs to get on board but it's it seems to be a slow takeoff how have you adopted that approach and what have you learned so far from that okay so I think our, our stance on this started with with the concept of lifetime repair I mean what we make is inherently durable because we we operate with high levels of craftsmanship and and hopefully good design where durability is is built in and designed in but the concept of lifetime repair um i think it was it was probably patagonia and yvonne chenard and my awareness of the work that he'd done on it and i thought well that's obvious of course we should offer lifetime repair it's an easy thing to do so that was the starting point and then the circularity argument um as it's gained momentum over the last 10 years or so really took us beyond that to um, what is a relatively new initiative for us of, of a take-back scheme where anybody who, who owns our furniture, um, and we do have geographic limitations, which are just for the purpose of the practicality of recovering and bringing it back. But essentially, within at this moment, we operate it within the UK, we can collect therefore if it's no longer required if it's no longer relevant useful um or, or the or the circumstances of the owner have just changed we can take it back we can give it a value depending on the condition of it which is then issued as a credit against more furniture that we can supply but then what we take back we seek to either repair refurbish repurpose reuse um, or at worst, recycle. Um, and because it's all natural materials, they're recyclable. And so in order to, do, to, to offer that and do that, you have to think at the design stage and the making stage about, well, well, how easy is it to repair? How easy is it to take it apart? When this comes back to us, you know, are we going to be able to take it apart? And so you start to, to, to think, even when you're making it for the first time, about how you're going to remake it or repurpose it or refurbish it. There's nothing new. I mean, you know, it's, it's centuries old, the concept that, that furniture should be able to be reused and repurposed. It was, you know, furniture used to be a, the, one of the very high value items that any household owned. And so it had to be transportable. It had to be repairable. Um, and somehow we lost sight of that. So we're only really seeking to reintroduce something that that has been around. But yes, it, it's 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 an exciting it's an exciting new avenue for us, and it also hopefully will bring a new audience to us because there will be this this body of um, furniture that's available for for resale, um, refurbished furniture for resale. And that hopefully will bring us new customers as well. So, you know, I hope it's good business as well as as good for the world. 
but also as you say it sort of starts already from the product development uh, point of view so we have a uh, when we start new projects we, we're just about to go into a, a new product development uh, process um, this month and um, when we start out a, a collaboration like that um, we have a wheel that we are sort of measuring all the or the starting processor and all the way through really up against this uh, wheel. And one of those is, but if it's gonna last a lifetime, how do we then, you know, how, where do we start? So I think it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely starting from the very beginning that we are considering all of those different aspects, which is um, com- ending up being the, the, the sort of finished, finished um, product. You're effectively shouldering the responsibility for waste creation yes. up front in the production process, in the design process, because you know you're taking ownership of that rather than designing and saying, well, someone else can worry about what happens when, it, when it's finished, when, it, when it's no longer needed. Uh, yes, but I, I'd also say we, we don't look upon it as perhaps waste creation because what we take back is never waste. I mean, what we take back has opportunity. It, it has repurposing. It it has a resale. It has you know, a lot of inherent embodied value still in it, more than just the materials for recycling. So, I mean, the very, very last resort would be conversion into biomass fuel, but but um, that would be the absolute last resource. So, I really try to think that I would like to think that nothing we make ever ends up as waste. It just ends up as another kind of resource. Which is the, takes us back to the wonderful sort of yeah. the, the circle rather than a linear. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully. Well, it's, um, it's admirable work. It's really great stuff. So you've obviously got retail collections. You're also working with interior designers and architects. How are people connecting with you? Where are you present in the world? People connect with us. I mean, I, I suppose our primary link is through the architectural community. Um, we've, you know, we've worked with, we're lucky enough to work with many of the world's biggest, best and or most forward-thinking architects. Um, and so that is one of the major connections with the world. We also deal with the furniture dealerships who have historically not been at the forefront of um, either, either sustainable practice. You know, they'd be more interested in flogging a lot of furniture than than what happens to it. it it's lifestyle. It, it, it's lifetime use. But actually, that is changing, and and pretty much all the dealerships are now having to engage in the argument, and they have this whole sustainable and circularity and health and well being aspects now figure much higher in their customers buying profile and so the the dealerships are having to take that on board as well that's another network that we that we operate through and then i think just through the world of of people who are interested in sustainability people like yourself people like the planted uh planted cities uh group that are looking at at how we improve circularity um the way we view the products we consume 
the good part there is that there's there's very little, I imagine, sales process because the work speaks for itself and there's a shared value system that one can just tap into and connect with because it's in, in one sense universal, although we wish it was slightly wider spread, of course. But for those of us who have bought into it and who have adopted it as our worldview, it's and we connect with and see what you do, it's yeah, there is no conversion process required. It's it's just completely smooth. Well, that that completely connects with how I see the world, and that's I think. Uh, where the, the real value is. So I'm going to be conscious of your time. Thank you so much. It's been a really meaningful conversation. We'll add uh, website links, etc., in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you for inviting us.